Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad as a detective sergeant. With me today, I have my co-host, excellent detective from Intelligence Division and the 6-0 Squad, Phil Grimaldi, all the way from Brooklyn. <laughs> Straight out of Brooklyn, I should say. How's it going today, Phil? Pretty good, Bill. Thank you for having me back. It's great having you. I think the people in the chat love uh, Phil Grimaldi from Brooklyn. They like it that you're coming straight out of Brooklyn. Anyway, folks, police off the cuff and real crime stories. Thanks to you guys, uh, the fa fans of this show. We've added like another almost 4,000 subscribers in the last two weeks. And uh, we have a lot of people to thank for that. Most of you guys who are in the chat right now, we thank you for liking this show. We thank you for subscribing. We thank you for giving a thumbs up. Some of you other folks joining our Patreon, we really appreciate that too, because um, that helps us keep the show alive. You know, nothing these days is for free. We keep the show going. And, you know, if you want to keep in contact with us, we're on Instagram. That's our Instagram address right there. And um, we're, try we're trying to grow. And uh, one, of the, one of the main architects behind us who's helped us grow a great deal is uh, Duty Run. And everyone knows Duty Run because most of you guys that are fans of this show are also fans of Duty Run. On the screen you see right now, um, you can subscribe to us on uh, YouTube and leave a comment. Let us know what you're thinking, all right? Or you can follow us on Facebook. And we also have a website uh, that you could check us out on our website. And uh, that's policeoffthecuff.com. We got a lot of stuff on there. We got a lot of good things coming up. And uh, we'd appreciate if you'd, uh, again, subscribe and Give us that thumbs up. You know, Phil. Phil, I want to just make one comment about what you were just saying. Sure. I know from uh, internally what goes into this show. And, uh, Bill, you've really knocked it out of the park. A lot of times you, you're coming up with some fantastic guests. And I know that the effort that you put in and all the hard work you've been for the last, uh, I can't even imagine how many episodes you've done. But uh, hat, hat off to you. And uh, I know that uh, you're always working on it. And uh, we're going to continue to do great shows. And uh, welcome to all those new guests and uh, the new subscribers. Phil, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And, you know, as they say, birds of a feather flock together. And that's why I choose you to come on these real crime shows. You got that, uh, that knowledge database that I really appreciate. You I know, folks, so. this case now is 31 days old. And we're talking about the missing case of a five-year-old girl. And I mean, just, I mean, it's, it's too hard to just imagine if this was your, your little girl about how you would be freaking out over this. You know, I mean, it's, it's just too much to imagine that, you, you know, the grief and uh, the upset nature of this, there she is with her three little brothers. It's just, it's too hard to imagine, but we're going to, we're going to approach this from a law enforcement perspective, because that's where me, me and Phil came from, Phil and I, proper English, I'll use the proper English. That's where we came from is a law enforcement background. And one of the things I think we always have to go back to, and I'm always um, enthralled at, was the very first interview. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show that interview because I think it's extremely pertinent to this case. And I, I'm just going to play it. I'm going to play it again. I'm going to put it on the screen. And I'm going to play it now, and uh, we're going to we're going to just analyze that. A lot. I know she didn't walk away from this property by herself or off this yard. 
by her swing. I feel in my heart that somebody has came up here and took her and has lured her away from here. Me and my mother and her were planting flowers. And we went in after we got done washing our hands and she got a piece of candy from grandma and she wanted to go back over and see her brothers. And I said, okay. And I walked her all the way over to the porch and I watched her walk into the kitchen where the boys were watching TV. And I told the boys, I said, watch summer. I'll be back. And within two minutes I came back and I asked the boys where their sister was. And they said, she went downstairs, mom, to play with her toys in the playroom. I said, okay. And I yelled downstairs for her a couple times and I didn't get no answer which was unusual because usually she always answers me. And so I went down there to check and she was nowhere in sight. She was just gone. I don't go on walks around here or runs because I'm scared of the bears and snakes and even the coyotes that are around here. Well, whoever has my daughter, I pray and hope that they have not harmed her and they bring her back to us safe and sound. Just turn, I mean, go to the FBI, the police, and uh, clear it up. I mean, I don't know. It seems kind of elusive. It's really strange that I've never seen this truck, and I've never heard of it until just recently. But I wish they would come forward and explain themselves. I mean, if you're not a suspect, at least come forward and say what you've seen. She was a tomboy. I shaved my head. She wanted to have her head shaved like me and the boys did. She tried to shave her head. She tried in to the shave back her head and, and make it. Uh, I think you can see it in some of the pictures, and it was getting out of control. So she, we decided to shave her head off and let it grow back long. And she shaved her head to, to so she wouldn't feel bad. And uh, but. But it didn't bother at this point. Well, we knew, I knew right away that she was abducted. You know, I knew that right away. And that's what I told them from the beginning. But they have to, they have to go through their, you know, I forget the word. Investigation. They have to do one step at a time, I guess. But I'm sorry that they had to spend so many man hours in these woods and everything. I've seen them limping and everything else, you know, and I feel for them. But. I just wish there was a way that neighbors could search neighbors' houses and then if they're not willing, you know, get a search warrant or something, but there's just no way you can search every single house, you know, in the Eastern United States or whatever. But I wish there was a way. Just thankful for the person or persons that's doing that, you know, out of love and trying, trying to get information and trying to get her found. We thank them from the bottom of our hearts. It means a lot. And we thank uh, everybody who's trying so hard and praying so hard. And she's an awesome young lady, and uh, we just want her back. But, yeah. yeah, there's always going to be haters, you know, and, you know, it's always going to be that way in this world. And we just want to focus on the, the good friends and Christian people that are trying to help us and praying for us and praying for summer 
you know, we thank them from the bottom of our hearts, and that's the kind of people we try to relate with and socialize with. So we don't know anything about, you know, no red truck, or we hardly know many of our neighbors. I mean, because we just try to be around good people. I mean, and we do have good people in this area. We found out since this has all happened, we got some real good neighbors and good folks everywhere. But uh, the most so. important thing is to bring Summer home safe. I'm sorry that you feel this way about us, but we love our children with everything we have. We've never went without, thanks to Summer's daddy and my husband. He's always provided for us and has worked as much as he could and can and still is. And I'm sorry that you guys feel that way, but... What do you think, Phil? Well, I think that that interview is very telling. Um, I'm not a body language expert. However, I do have extensive uh, experience with interview and interrogation. And from that interview, um, it looks like when there's specific detail being told about the day that she disappeared, um, the mom seems to direct her answer away from the person that's asking the question. She always seems to be looking away when she's talking about a specific detail. But however, when she's talking about an opinion of, you know, that the husband took care of them and, and Summer's dad kept them uh, from having want, uh, basically taking care of the family, she looks like she's looking directly in the, in the direction of uh, the person who's doing the interview. Now, that doesn't mean that she's responsible for the disappearance and whatever happened to little summer but um i just think that she's not uh from the body language that i'm seeing it doesn't look like she's being a hundred percent uh honest in her answers um the look obviously is you know not very good they both look like they might be on some time of some type of intoxicant could be prescription drugs god only knows and then also the father talks about the bizarre behavior. He, he, he said it got out of control with the shaving of, of the head. That's kind of a little bit of a red flag for me. Like, you know, what was going on in that home that this kid decided to shave the back of a head? And when the father's words, it got out of control, they decided to shave her whole head so it would grow back long. So, you know, there's some kind of uh, behavior that was exhibited in that interview that I don't like. There's also the past behavior about the shaving the head that I don't like. And again, I don't have privy. You don't have privy to the case folder. We don't know exactly what direction that law enforcement is going in. But based on that interview, there's a few red flags that I think need to be addressed. Uh, again, the body language, not an expert on it, but I do have a lot of, uh, as you do as well, Bill, uh, experience with interview and interrogation. And body language a lot of times does tell you uh, whether or not a person is being truthful or dishonest. So uh, th those little couple of things just off of that interview uh, is what I would be focusing on. You know, Phil, I, I don't like when body language experts um, talk in absolutes. For example, different body language is different for different people. So yeah. certain people exhibit certain types of body language, and that's indicative to their personality. Agree and with you 100%. And I'll let you finish, and then I'll add something to that. But I agree with that 
Yeah, so when you get alleged body language experts that just across the board say, oh, he's crossing his arms, he's being deceptive, or he's being defensive. Oh, he's he's rubbing his face. Oh, that's another sign of deception because he's trying to hide his face. You know, it's not, it can't be viewed as across the board. That's what it means. Each interview is different. Each person is different. And in the context of the interview, that is how body language has to be analyzed. That point that you just made, I think, is exactly right on point. I think that body language experts usually speak in generalities, and it's okay. I do feel that body language for me in my interviews is exactly to the point what you said. As I would speak to a person, and I would start to uh, develop a, a rapport with them, and I see when they're talking about something that I know is fact, I kind of pick up on their body language. It might not be something very, very direct but it might be something as easy as they're looking away when they're answering about specific details. Whereas when I'm asking them pedigree information or something that I know the answer to, they're looking directly at me. So, you, and you're gonna develop that sense of vital language, just as you said, Bill, over the course of time in an interview, 100%, I agree with that. It, it's really, uh, it's, it becomes an art form, I guess you can say. As you're, you know, doing this interview, you'll pick up on it. And from being an investigator, being a detective, it just comes naturally to you. But uh, you made very, very good point there, Bill. Well, thank you, Phil. I, I did used to do this. <laughs> I know, right? I did have a, a few years of experience doing this. One of the things I want to get back to, folks, is that a police procedure in a, in a missing person case, when you get called to a scene, especially what we would call a special category missing person, which this is, it's a child under 10 and also under circumstances that indicate involuntary uh, disappearance. So it's a special category. The first thing the police should do or should have done is to search the, the house that she was reported missing from, do an extreme in-depth search of that house. I'm sure they did that. That's police procedure 101. And I'm just really telling that uh, for the benefit of all listeners, not for the benefit of the police. I'm sure the uh, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, the local police, and of course the FBI is in on this case. They they know what they're doing in this case. So that's the first thing. Uh, you want to make a comment on that, Phil? Well, I think right off the bat, you look at the John A. Ramsey case. That was uh, one of the first things they did, and they found her in the home. So, I mean, like you said, that's uh, uh, police procedure routine, uh, police procedure 101. You'd search, you'd start in the home, and then you'd, you know, uh, go out, uh, search the immediate area around the home, and then you would uh, go further from there. So, yeah, that's obviously, I, I would say 100% that that was done. You know, one of the things now, she was reported missing uh on June 15th at allegedly 6.30 at night, give or take a few minutes here or there. Now, that day is the day that is is very suspect and is causing a lot of uh, people to ask lots and lots of questions. Now, that morning, and I don't want to give specific timestamps because we don't really have the specific uh, timestamps that are available to the police. As I said, we're not privy to the case folder. NYPD Captain Andrews Destefano, thank you so much for the 499 Super Chat. He's one of our good friends, a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Now, with that, with that said, they went to three or four different locations. They, they, were, they were supposedly in the car was the three boys, Summer and the grandmother. And at some point, they picked up a 15-year-old boy by the name of H. 
And they allegedly there were three or four stops. One was the hospital. Uh, one was the drugstore, right? Walgreens drugstore to pick or drop off a prescription. Uh, the other one was a convenience store where they picked up the milk jugs where later on someone was seen sleeping on with a head against. And the other place was a swimming hole where they killed about 20 minutes prior to doing their getting all their errands together. Now, that's a lot of things to have on a time step. And Phil, you know, and as well as I know, if we were the investigators in this case, we would have exact timestamps on all those stops. And one of the ways you can do that is, A, Walgreens, what time were they in there based on the video in the store, based on the receipt from the cash register? What time were they in the convenience store? Same thing, video uh, receipt for for their purchase. The um, swimming wow. hole, basically, they took pictures at the swimming hole. So right. there's another there's another timestamp. Going back to drop off H, that that's in their cell phone hitting cell towers at a very specific location. So all of these activities are generating um, timestamps, which we, being uh, internet guys, uh, you know, real crime stories, we don't have the exact timestamps that the police have. I know there's a lot of internet sleuths that swear they know the exact timestamps, and I don't, I don't think that's very accurate. But that is very, very, very Im important, those timestamps. Of course, that's important. And I think what you alluded to was there's three or four stops. The, the immediate thing that I would uh, request after getting that information, if I was the investigator assigned to the case, I'd want to go to those locations and do a uh, do a canvas and try and find witnesses to see if they saw Summer with them when they went to this hospital and they went to this convenience store and they went to Walgreens and the swimming hall. So there would have to be some canvassing done for witnesses to see. Now, just because those timestamps... 100% right, Bill. You, you got receipts and you got video cameras. We might be able to place them there. But was she with them? That's going to be an important factor because just because they're reporting that she was with them at all those places and then they claim she disappeared from the home doesn't mean that it's true or that's what, what actually took place. So I'm sure that the investigators probably went and canvassed these locations to find out maybe a person might have uh, you know, noticed a cute little kid and, and yeah, she was there. So uh, they'll have not only a time frame and a time stamp of exacts what time they were at these locations, but they'll also have information was someone with them, which I think is very important because if, if the family members or whoever's reporting it is suspect, their story might not be, uh, you know, uh, 100% correct, obviously. She could have disappeared the day before or earlier that day or something. So I think that that's very important points that you brought up, Bill. You know, uh, Kim Claflin in the uh, live chat, uh, she wrote, if you go back and look at pictures of that baby for the last year, look at the major changes in her face and behavior. She, she was always protecting her crotch area. Now, I, I don't know if that's a fact or not. That's something probably that a child abuse expert might be able to spot, or a sexual abuse expert. I didn't, uh, I didn't see those pictures where that was specifically mentioned. But uh, Kim, I that believe sounds that sounds like a question for Irma Rivera, who was a specialty uh, detective in Special Victims Squad. Yeah, I mean, that, Special Victims is a very um, unique type of investigative uh, job on all police departments. And believe it or not, I always considered those people to be really 
doing God's work. And at least on the NYPD, there was there was two areas of special victims. One was sex crimes and one was uh, child abuse. And being a child abuse investigator is uh, one of the most difficult uh, investigations. Extremely difficult, absolutely. And, and not the investigation, but the toll that it takes on sure. the, invest, the investigator. Getting back to this, um, uh, Phil, we don't have any clear timestamp. So at some point, they all come back. And I just want to show I have this picture is not all that clear, but I'm just because it, it's reproduced from a uh, a video image, a still video image. That's the famous picture, or at least famous on the internet, of someone's falling asleep in the car. And I guess this would be after the swim, after the convenience store, after the drugstore, dropping off H. I don't know the exact chronology of that, but Barbara Butcher, who is a um, was is a retired chief of staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, who is the most uh, knowledgeable scientist I know on the science of death. She looked at this photo, and the one she looked at, of course, was much clearer than this one. And she said there was no doubt in her mind from analyzing this photo, based on many factors, that uh, uh, Summers is alive. The pinkness of her lips, the way she was holding her hands, uh, the fact that uh, uh, her, the way her neck tilted. Barbara, we, she was on the show last week, and she gave many, many uh, reasons why she felt that uh, someone was alive. Yeah, I uh, I think the picture that we looked at when, uh, when you uh, had Barbara on, it was much clearer picture. Um, and you could see the color of the lips. You could see the color of the skin. And those were the first two things that jumped out at me when I saw that picture, when I was watching that episode. Um, it was obvious to me that that child was not deceased. Uh, Barbara Butcher basically uh, came to that same conclusion. And um, there was just so many things that we went through or that you guys went through on that, on that episode that indicated that, uh, you know, that, that looked like a sleeping child, that she wasn't deceased. But again, with that picture, if that picture, if the, if the family's claiming that that picture was taken on the day that she disappeared, whatever cell phone they use to take that picture, there's going to be a timestamp. And as we learned from Mike Fabozzi that was on uh, previously, that we can find out um, the exact location where the picture was taken. So if the family is telling us the picture was taken at two o'clock in the afternoon and we were at this location, and then from the cell phone, once we do a subpoena on the cell phone, it tells us that, or it tells us something different, we'll know that there's whether or not the, the family is being truthful in their uh, in their answers to investigative questions. You know, some some of the folks in the uh, in the chat are claiming that Don Wells is a noted uh, sexual uh, predator, that he abused his own sister from the age of five onwards. I don't have, we specifically don't have the police records of that occurring. Uh, I can't, you know, to me, at this point, it's 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 a rumor, and I can't just put it out there as fact. But I, th there's many times I've heard this from different people uh, on the Internet in regards to this case. But uh, until it's verified by law enforcement or, or child services, I can't really comment on that. What I can comment on is Don Wells certainly is no angel. He's got he's got a record in three different states, you know, and he has part of one of his, the big things, uh, his criminal record is his um, 
domestic abuse criminal record. So he speaks softly and, you know, with purposefully, but he's not a nice guy. All right. He's been in prison and, uh, that, I mean, being in prison doesn't necessarily mean you can't turn over a new leaf and become a new person. But I always go back to that saying by the great John Jay college professor, uh, past conduct is very indicative of future conduct. You know, yeah, I, I like that. Uh, I like that uh, saying because it's obviously got some weight to it. Um, you know, that domestic violence case that you're talking about, that was only a few months before Little Summer disappeared, where he appeared and she called 911 and the police came and they arrested him with an illegal handgun. They issued a, the judge issued an order of protection for uh, the mom and for the family. And um, she dropped the charges eventually. So there's obviously, there, there's a history on both sides of, of the, the parents in this case, the mother and the father with criminal records and, and past uh, history and uh, behavior. So I'm sure that that's being looked at. And, um, you know, uh, there's, there's going to be a, a successful conclusion to this case. I feel very strongly about that. Oh, yeah, I do too. Uh, Ladybug asks, um, could the white buckets with flowers near grandma and the white buckets in the red truck be connected? Well, we can't really connect them until we have the red truck. Uh, you know, when you're talking about linkage, and that's what you're talking about, evidence linkage, to compare one piece of evidence to another, you have to have both pieces of evidence. Sure. So lady, Ladybug, great question, but that's the answer. Unless we have the red truck, we can't connect the dots there. You know, you know, Bill, I want to say something about the interview that you showed with the two parents. When they talk about this red truck, they almost dismiss it, but make out that that's what happened. She was abducted, you know. So that's another indicative thing in the interview that's a little bit uh, that I would have pressed on if I was the investigator. I would have called him in and said, you know, when you spoke about this red truck, you kind of dismissed it. But you're very uh, positive that. Uh, little summer was abducted. So I would, I would try to get into that kind of uh, line of questioning. You know, folks, if you're new to this channel and you're not subscribed to police off the cuff on YouTube, please do so. Just hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up. And we're also, of course, on Facebook. You want to make comments, you want to speak to us, you want to send comments to us. I try to answer as many comments as possible. However, if I answered all of them, I would do nothing else, but that we're starting to get a big audience. I'm very happy about that. And folks, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, our perspective on this, we're talking about from a perspective of experienced investigators. But besides my 27 years on the NYPD, 16 of those years, I was in the detective bureau and I started out in robbery. And then I went from robbery to a precinct detective squad where you investigate everything. And then from the precinct detective squad, I went to the homicide squad. So I have a great deal of investigative experience, as does my co-host, Phil Grimaldi, and he could just give you a, a quick little blurb on his experience. Yeah, I uh, retired after 22 years on the police force, and I only spent about three years in uniform before I went into a plainclothes assignment, which was anti-crime, which you did as well, Bill. And I did that for about two years. Then I went right into the investigative track. I was doing robbery investigation for a couple of years, for about two years. And then I went into... Like you said, the precinct detective squad, I spent uh, a large chunk of my career in the detective bureau. And in 2001, April, I was assigned to uh, the intelligence division. And around 9-11 is when I was assigned 
to do just a uh, counterterrorism investigation until I retired in 2003. So, I mean, my career and as well as your career, we've had a, a large taste of everything that the NYPD can throw at you. Uh, I would not say that I did everything that you could possibly do, but when it comes to investigation, I had uh, pretty good experience as you did as well, Bill. And homicide investigation is a little bit different than a lot of the other investigations because uh, the responsibility that's put on you when a person dies and is killed um, is uh, a tremendous responsibility. And you, so to speak, have to speak for the dead. You are now trying to get justice for that person. Now, I'm not saying that in this case that it's a homicide investigation. All indications are might lead to that uh, based on the fact that she's missing for so long. I hope not. I hope I'm wrong. I hope and pray to God that she's alive. But uh, just trying to give a background on... Uh, what we do or what we did as detectives and, uh, you know, working in, in the detective bureau for the NYPD as well as homicide investigation. Tim Acosta, thank you so much for the $5 super chat. And Tim makes a comment that the parents are responsible for the safety and well-being of a five-year-old, whether they were involved in her disappearance or not. And that's his opinion. And I agree with you, Tim. You're 100% correct. The buck stops with the parents. That's for sure. You know, I just want to get back to the investigation. Uh, you know something, let's go to a quick uh, commercial break and we'll get right back to the investigation. We'll switch gears, but I just want to uh, read this little message. Folks, if you're looking maybe to move uh, down south to a warmer climate, a climate with less taxes, a climate maybe politically more friendly than New York, among other places, Carol Waters sells real estate down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Uh, for 20 years, she was a bartender at Fitzpatrick's Hotel in Manhattan. Her and her husband, Rob Mayen, who was a former NYPD police officer, who later rolled over to the fire department, are a team down in Myrtle Beach. In fact, they're million-dollar salespeople. So whether you're looking for a condo, a rental home, or a regular home and you want to move down to Myrtle Beach, give Carol Waters a call, 914-261-6681, or you can email her at carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. Hey, Joe Murray is a terrific trial attorney. Uh, Joe is a retired member of the NYPD for about 15 years on the police force, and he is taking that uh, knowledge and expertise into the law field. So if you have need for an attorney, God forbid you wind up with a problem, you can get a hold of Joe Murray at jmurray-law.com. That's his website, jmurray-law.com. He can also be emailed at joe at jmurray-law.com. That's joe at jmurray-law.com. And his telephone number is 646-838-1702, 646-838-1702. Joe Murray, terrific attorney, big supporter of Police Off the Cuff. You can catch him on previous episodes and on Duty Run Show as well. Thank you, Phil. One of the things I wanted to get back to is that um, – we talked about the timeline and all the errands they did on that day, uh, you know, Walgreens stopping off at the hospital, stopping off at the swimming hole. Stopping what was off the, at the, uh, the, uh, the hospital stop for? Do you know what that was about? Yes, it, it was for the grandmother who had something wrong with her leg. Okay. Which also brings to point later on when they claim they're out planting flowers. It was like an emergency was, room visit or? Yeah, somewhat like that. She was okay. visiting uh, to, you know, take a look at her leg. Okay. Uh, anyway. My whole thing is, at some point, they drove home after all these errands. 
We don't know specifically, again, the timestamp. When did they go home? When did, did um, Soma ever get home? That's my thing. How do we know that she ever returned home other than Candace's word that she went home and Candace's word that she was planting flowers with her and the grandmother and at some point she went into the house, the boys were there, she went down to the basement and that was the last time she was ever seen. So to me, and I've said this before, the most important interview is of those three young boys because you should be able to get the truth out of them. Did they ever see their sister? Did they ever say, how about the grandmother? Were, were they, I mean, obviously, Phil, we know you got to interview people separately. You could never interview people together. And that's for the benefit of all listeners. People always have to be interviewed separately or else they'll try to get their stories together and uh, say the same thing. And, and that's why you interview them separately. But to me, the interview of those three boys is almost like the smoking gun interview. Yes, that's definitely key because that will determine if Summer actually did make it back to the house that day. Uh, and, you know, the theory that the family seems to be pushing is that she was abducted from their location, from their property. And I find that highly suspect only because, now I'm not saying it's impossible, only because it was the middle of the day. There seemed to be, according to their statement, some type of activity that was going on. So for a person or persons to come onto the property and to abduct a little summer doesn't seem very likely to me. And I think, and you, you know, Phil, just on, on the screen, you're looking at the aerial view of the house. Right. And, and, you know, listen, is it possible that someone could have snuck up there and grabbed her quickly and, and retreated with, uh, with her? Uh, I doubt that there would be no kicking and screaming and, you know, someone else that was home. It wasn't like there was only one person home. They could have been down in a basement with a radio playing and not hear it. There was a lot of people at home that day, according to their interview and, and to their statements. So I think you made a great point that the key is the, the younger kids and the grandmother to give a timeline and to tell us that they saw her there, that she was there, and to back up the statements of the mother and father saying that we were doing this and we were doing that. And the little summer went downstairs and we never saw her again. So I think that's very, very important. Again, I, I'll stress this. Not impossible, an abduction, not impossible, but I think it's unlikely based on what we know, looking at the terrain, looking at the area, and knowing that it was early evening and uh, there were a lot of people home. And I just think that uh, it would be very unlikely that that's what occurred. Not impossible, I could be wrong, but uh, it just seems unlikely to me at this point. You know, Phil, with the remoteness of this house, look at the aerial view. Look at the woods and the forest and the uh, nasty terrain all around there. You would have to go there on purpose. You wouldn't just bump into this house being on some, you know, main road and bump into this house. You would have to go there purposefully. So if it was an abduction, the person would have to know about this house and know about this five-year-old girl. That's why I always felt that, the, and I still feel, the answer to this case is in the circle of Candace and Don. Yes, I agree. It would have to be a targeted abduction, meaning someone would have to have known the terrain. They would have targeted the young girl. And that's not impossible. It's still quite possible. But I think that based on, uh, and I've said this before, the uh, 
the, the way that law enforcement seems to be moving in this investigation, doing these extensive searches and uh, th their posture in this, I don't think that uh, that's where this thing is going, where this case is leading. So again, don't have knowledge, intimate knowledge of the case folder, uh, not part of the actual investigation, just making it uh, an educated guess based on what I'm seeing and, and what knowledge and uh, information we do have. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to uh, put the the incident commander on the screen, who they've been, um, you know, they're, they're still doing this uh, search, but it, it's sort of been uh, toned down a little bit, the search. It hasn't been, it's not at the level it was, and you can understand it can't possibly be because of the size and the amount of people that would be necessary to keep this investigation going. You know, it's... Uh, going back uh right now in essence all we're pretty much going off of is like i said was is anything credible credible leads credible information officials announced on june 27th that the ground search for summer wells would be on an as-needed basis i don't feel like that i made the decision to quit we haven't quit it was just we had to scale back get our bearings back together allow these people to rest and recuperate to figure out where can we go next what can we hit aggressively next? What can we do to find somewhere else? Tim Coop led almost 1,200 people from 120 different agencies during the 13-day search in the Beach Creek community. That call to scale back still weighs heavy. Speaking with command staff, speaking to uh, subject matter experts that were involved from other agencies uh, out of state, getting together every day. Hey, this is what we've covered. This is the probability. This is putting all these things together to make the decision, I can say made the decision easier, but it did. Still at the end of the day, it was very difficult to make the decision of, of, of scaling back operations to only go off of credible leads. Coop is still working with authorities as tips come in and is in touch with those who assisted from in and out of state. He assures that every crew is ready whenever the call comes. Even if it's ground that has already been searched one to multiple times being in contact with tbi hawks county sheriff's department if it's something they feel as though uh needs to be a credible search needs to go back in and look look over things again we're we're right there with them captain so you could see phil uh a massive job that that is the massive job the search the amount of acreages what he said, there was like 1,200 people searching at one point? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the reality is that in the beginning, it's a search and rescue type mission if there's a chance that she's lost in the woods and still alive. And maybe they scaled back because a period of time had passed. And if, uh, you know, she was lost in these woods or, or that the, the chances of her being alive uh, diminished, so that may be why they scaled back. But, um, you know, I would really love to have uh, intimate knowledge to really make a good uh, assessment of what's going on. Because if I feel, I, I just have a feeling that they, they know where they're going with this. I'm sure that the uh, early on investigation interviews, all the things that we talked about were done. And we don't know the results of those things. We talked about the interviews of all the locations where they had stopped. We don't. We we talked about the interviews of the the brothers, and um, we talked about the interview of the parents. So whatever the results of those interviews and and what other evidence was uh, recovered, 
um, you know, we don't really know. So that would give us a much better idea of where this case was going, you know. You know, Phil, one of the things that I always like to talk about, and uh, that comes out of my being a criminal justice professor for 10 and a half years, and that is the art and the science of investigation. And the art of the investigation, of course, is all the policing skills, you know, uh, interview, interrogation, just regular police work, police procedure. That's the art form. The science is what we talked about the other day with Mike Fabozzi, uh, talking about the electronic devices, uh, the cell phones, the cell towers, all of the possible. We even we spoke about geofencing the other night with Mike Fabozzi, which was a topic that is pretty damn complex. We talk about license plate readers, license plate readers that scan thousands of license plates. And that is part of the science also, because that data is available to investigators. Um of course, cell towers, tolls, toll booth cameras, cameras in stores, you know, electronic devices of all kinds, laptops, computers. This is that is the science of the investigation. Of course, so is forensic evidence. And right now, there is no forensic evidence to this investigation. But when the art and the science of investigation comes together, that's when it becomes much more powerful. And that's when we're going to get results. You know, Bill, you're 100% right on that. And I think that, you know, a, a lot of people are, uh, don't really know that when a homicide occurs, the prosecutor in the uh, area uh, become involved in the case. So they have an input on direction. And uh, a lot of times, um, you know, they'll base their input on interviews. And we don't know if there was any search warrants where evidence was recovered. We don't know anything about that. So there may be some things that we're, we're not being able to include because in we don't know. But um, I think that the fact that she hasn't been found and the prosecutors are probably very plugged into the case and they may be, uh, you know, holding off on making any statements or pointing any fingers because they want to try and find her. And then I'm sure there'll be developments with the uh, with the local district attorney's office or the prosecutor, whoever it is, that might shed a little bit more light on the things that did occur. Maybe, uh, you know, talk about uh, how they came to where they're going to be uh, in the future. So uh, that's one of the things that happens in homicide investigation. The uh, local prosecutor is usually notified on the day if it's a homicide, they're notified right away. In a case like this, even though it's not a homicide case yet, I'm sure the local prosecutor is uh, is involved because they're going to play a big part in you know search warrants and uh, subpoenas and things like that. Especially I'm being Phil, I'm being advised in the chat by KH Walker that the boys did not go on the errands or the swimming trip. I was, um, you know, KH Walker, you you may be 100% right, but I had seen some pictures of the boys swimming. And that's why I say we can't depend on the information on the internet to be 100%. We're not privy to the case folder. That's something I would know 100% if we were privy to part of the actual investigation and not the internet investigation of this. But KH Walker, thank you very much. If that happens to be true, I will check on it to see if that is in fact true. But it still is important in, in the way that the boys allegedly saw summer go down into the house and go down into the basement so that's one of the most important things that uh that we were talking about 
The other thing when I talk about the art and the science of investigation, I would imagine because this family seemed to have some problems that they must have had a social worker assigned to the family. They had domestic violence issues. It seems like the mom and the pop uh, uh, potentially have drug and alcohol problems. I, I would drug- think that social workers would have been notified when that collar went down where she had the husband arrested with the gun. I mean, there's children in a home. If they weren't notified, they should have been. But uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Bill. No, no. And, and my point being is that social workers are also investigators. What do they know about these kids? What do they know, uh, you know, about the family? You know, what do they know about Summer? You know, those are part, that's part of the big investigation. It's really part of the big investigation. You know, I, I, I just want to bring this up too. I have two boys. They're grown men now. But when they were younger, my wife and I both worked full time. So we had what's called au pairs. We had girls from other countries come. They, live, they lived with us and they watched our kids. And I knew, of course, from being a police officer, I wanted the amount of people that had access to my children kept to the barest minimum. And one of the first things I always asked the au pair was, do you have a boyfriend? Oh, you do? Fine. Don't ever bring him around my house. And I mean, that may sound crazy, but it's not crazy to me. I'm glad you have a boyfriend. I hope you're very happy. Just don't bring him around my house or around my kids. If I hear that happen, you're going to have some problems, you know? And by the reason I'm bringing this up is because who were involved in the circle of Candace and Don Wells? Who were in their circle? There could have been some, you know, I love that expression, birds of a feather flock together. They, they weren't hanging out with, you know, uh, they were probably hanging out with people that were just like them. And I hate to pass, but we've seen who they are. They both have criminal histories. They both have alcohol and drug problems. You think they weren't hanging out with the same people? So in that circle potentially could be a wrongdoer that was around their children. Sure, 100%, Bill. And I, I agree with you. I mean, I have I have three daughters. And, uh, you know, we always tried to keep the circle tight, so to speak, of who was around them. And, you know, in this day and age, uh, sleepovers and this and that. And I would always point the question and I would always have uh, the conversation with my wife. If our daughter is going to sleep there, who's the brother? Who's the cousin? Who's the dad? Who's going to be home in the house? Those are all very important questions. And and listen, we're safety minded because of our background in law, law enforcement. But also we know from the last, you know, 40 years, 50 years, whatever it is of all these horrible things that took place. So you try to be a little bit more security conscious when it comes to your children. So, uh, you know, and, and obviously, like you said, the circle around the parents, whoever was close to them could possibly be responsible for the disappearance of little Summer. Phil, that's where the answer is. I'm telling you that right now. And I've discussed on this show and I've discussed on Duty Ron's show the concept of victimology. And victimology is very simply the, uh, the study of the victim, which includes a includes a huge backgrounding on the victim. Find every single thing about the victim you can possibly find find out. Better Angels, thank you so much for your $14.99 Super Chat. And I'll read your comment. Thank you for your professionalism and service. Really appreciate your sharing and experience. Thank you, Better Angels. And I appreciate you and your support. If you haven't subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, please do so. Uh, You know, this is 
I'm Bill Cannon. I'm a retired NYPD homicide sergeant. And with me is retired detective Phil Grimaldi. I, I hesitate to say second grade because someone the other day accused me of saying Phil was a second rate detective. No, there's on the NYPD, there's grades. There's third, there's second, there's first. A second grade detective on the NYPD makes sergeants pay. So it's nothing to sneeze at. But I, I just hesitated to say that again, Phil. I hear you. I hear you. And obviously, uh, that's not the case. Uh, we're good friends, and uh, we uh, have a, a professionalism between us with regard to the show. And uh, I just look at you as a, as a colleague and uh, and a good friend. And uh, the show is, is obviously uh, doing well, and it's a testament to your hard work, Bill. I, I've known you for a while, and uh, just about every time I've been talking to you in the recent past, you've been doing something for the show, whether it be booking a guest, uh, doing a banner trying to improve things, hiring uh, a producer and stuff. And, uh, you know, Duty Ron as well did a lot to uh, help this show along. And uh, we talked about that earlier, but, uh, yeah, I'm very, very proud and uh, uh, very uh, impressed to be part of it. Thank you, Phil. Uh, Rebecca M. in the chat says, have they checked for videos of them at the hospital? Um, hang on, you just, it just, at the hospital, the drugstore, the grocery store, did they stop for gas? Rebecca M., that's one of the checklists that I'm sure that the detectives, the investigators have done. They would go to all the stops. They would check all the timestamps. They would collect all the video because there's something in investigation where if you can't rule something in, then you got to rule something out. And part of the timestamp stuff is to just not rule things in, but potentially rule things out. And that's why when you hear me and Phil speak of timestamps, they're just so, so important because they can totally change everything. They can refute information. They can say, oh, no, they couldn't have done that because they were here at that time. So that's why time stamp information is so, so, so important. Um, you know, I want to just, you know, Phil, here we are. We're in 31 days after she was reported, reported missing. Investigators, first responders, the local police, they got to be getting frustrated. They want to solve this case so much. I mean, you saw how passionate that captain was from, I think it was the local fire department. You know, he was almost in tears, it seemed, you know, and he's probably overworked and they are so passionate to try to find this girl. So having said that, even the investigators have to have a level of frustration right now. Can you maybe speak upon that a bit? Yeah, I'm sure they are uh, frustrated, um, and especially the searchers. I mean, they're going through some heavy terrain. I mean, they're, they're talking about bears and snakes and coyotes and all of that. So it's obviously quite dangerous doing those type of searches. But, um, you know, they, they, uh, they there may be stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't know, and they may have a very good idea, and they just want to find summer before they proceed with any uh, further, uh, you know, let's say charges or anything like that in the case. So uh, uh, listen, police work is tedious. Uh, it's not easy. It's not like a, a one hour episode episode of uh, Law and Order or NYPD Blue. Uh, a lot of things take time, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, cell phone records and videotapes and things like that. These things aren't, you know, they don't happen in, in a minute or two. So the frustration, I'm sure, is there. But if you're a professional, you just plow through the frustration and uh, you move forward with the investigation. And, um, 
hopefully there'll be a conclusion to it sometime soon. And uh, that's that's what makes you uh, get up every morning and uh, you know proceed with your uh, with your job. You know, with your uh, your your test with. Hundred percent. Barbara Kaiser says, "What about a dry drowning? She was underwater during their swimming trip. It can be up to twenty-four hours before pulmonary edema can set in and kill. Did that happen? And the parents panicked. You know, Barbara, could that have happened? I'm not saying it couldn't have happened. We don't know. We don't. We don't have summer to 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 you know do an autopsy and find out if I mean if in fact she's no longer with us. And we hope and pray that she is still with us." But if, if something like that did happen, then, of course, autopsy would uh, determine that or what the cause of death was. We don't even want to think about that, uh, although it is 31 days. And it's uh, it, we're talking about the frustrations of the investigators. In addition, what Phil just mentioned is that, of course, the investigators have a lot more information that they're not sharing with the public. And in one way, I admire that, but in another way, I get frustrated, just like a member of the public, that we're not hearing updated information on what may have happened and real solid information of the results of their investigation. But you know something? They're doing that for a reason. And historically, the FBI, of course, is always very tight-lipped. Phil and I, being members of the NYPD, uh, we felt that the department gave too much information to the press uh, to the point that it endangered the case at some point. And we didn't like that at all. And um, it can actually really hurt the case. But they've been very closed mouth. One of the things I want to touch upon, too, is that they talk about this red pickup truck. And I have uh, this was put out by the Tennessee Bureau investigation. It's either a Toyota, possibly 1998 to 2000, maroon or red. Toyota Tacoma with a full bed ladder rack along with white buckets in the truck bed. Now, one of the things you have to realize about information like this, this is being given to them by a witness. Could be one witness, could be two witnesses. But witnesses tell different stories sometimes. I always remember the Beltway Sniper case, which was a huge case down in Washington, D.C., where a sniper was just killing people uh, just shooting people at gas pumps in front of supermarkets. And there was rumored to be a big white truck at the scene of these shootings. And there may well have been a big white truck at the scene of these shootings. But guess what? The big white truck had nothing to do with these shootings. It turned out to be a Chevrolet Caprice that the guy was laying down in the back of the trunk. And that information never came out. But during these shootings, people were seeing a big white truck. So in this information, how pertinent is the red, you know, the red pickup truck? Is it the exact look? It's even it's even when you read the description, it's more than one description. It's a Toyota or possibly a Toyota Tacoma. So they don't know and it's either red or maroon. So right there, it's telling me they're not 100 percent sure what this truck. But there's some other good things about it, talking about the ladder, the white seats. Someone obviously got a very good look at it. And, you know, Phil, you want to talk? We spoke about it the other night about the lawman search. You want to touch upon that quickly? Sure. I just, uh, with regard to this truck, it sounds to me like, based on the timeline that the parents laid out, it it was either seen in the area or maybe picked up on a video camera uh, with uh, regard to the time frame. You know, that's what it sounds like to me that, of course, they were specific about saying that this 
vehicle might be uh, uh, not a person of interest, but possibly a witness. Um, so it sounds like maybe they picked it up on a video camera or a witness saw it in the area. That's where that information come from. And it was pretty specific. A lawman search in, in New York City, what we would do is if it was this case, it was in New York, we would uh, work with the Department of Motor Vehicles and say, uh, can you give us all Toyota Tacoma, either red or maroon pickup trucks between the years of 1998 to let's say 2002, because they described it as your late 90s, early 2000s. And then what it would do is we would go to a specific area. So we would go, let's say, to the county where these people live. And we would get every registered Toyota Tacoma pickup truck, either red or maroon, in that area. And you'd go and do interviews and talk to the people that own these vehicles. Were you in the area on that day? It might be as little as one or two. It might be dozens. The more information that you have on a vehicle, like if you had partial plate or you had um, – something more specific like the exact year, let's say, you'd be able to narrow it down. But when you do a general, what's called the lawman search, it gives you, it's a great tool because it gives you any vehicles registered. Now, you might wind up with a fat zero and there's no vehicles registered in that specific area. Then you would expand the search outward, let's say to uh, a couple of the counties or the whole state. And it's just something to do to interview. Now, they talked about the ladder in the back of the pickup as well as white buckets. So during your interviews, if you got, let's say you got a dozen of these and you sent investigators out to go do interviews, if you saw the truck and you saw the pickup truck, uh, uh, you saw the ladder and the white buckets in the back, you'd know pretty safely that you might have the truck that they're speaking about. So if you talk to that person and they're being evasive and say, no, I wasn't, we haven't moved the truck or I'm not in that area. Now you have a little bit more to go on, you know, so you, you'd be a little bit more substantial in your interview of that particular person. But that's basically how lawman search works. Phil, I think that you explained it pretty damn well. You know, one of the things that's a favorite investigative tool, and one of the things we always talk about on the NYPD is shaking the tree. And it's just sort of a metaphor for shaking the tree and what something's going to fall out when you shake the tree. And one of the things we do all the time, of course, is debrief people who are arrested. People are arrested, a, a, a huge source of information. And let me extend that to people who are in correctional facilities. They may have just gotten there or been there for 30 days or 20 days. They may have information. People in correctional facilities have nothing to do but talk. And lots of them have information. Some of them have good information. You may even want to send some detectives to the, to the local jail or local prisons and talk to uh, some of the inmates. Lays, liaise with corrections, with probation, with parole. Of course, we've spoke about interviewing all sex offenders in this area, right? Criminal, anyone, criminal histories, but people that just were released from prison. This stuff, all this stuff is voluminous and so time consuming and investigators have to really determine what is worth they're wild to do. You, you can't do every investigative technique I'm talking about. You have to sort of, you know, determine what is the most important and what will potentially bear you fruit in this investigation. And then you, you also have to have the manpower to do these things too, Bill. You know, I mean, having it, it sounds like they don't have a lot of manpower in the immediate area, but I, I'm sure they enlisted the state police and the FBI. So, you know, doing all of these things, I, I think if you were really at a loss 
for a direction to go. And that's when all of these other things would, would come into play. But um, one other thing I wanted to touch on, you mentioned about the, the what they're releasing to the public. I always was a big believer in preserve the integrity of the investigation by not letting too much out. And the reason being is this, if you say specific things about what took place, like for instance, if a person is is uh, stabbed to death with a Bowie knife and you mention the exact knife that was used. Now, when you go to do an interview, uh, you'll know if you're in the right direction, if they're describing the exact knife as opposed to a butter knife or something, you know, something to that effect. So I like to preserve the integrity of the investigation by not releasing too much. However, there are times when you want to put stuff out into the media and get the word out. Like for instance, if there's a, a photo of a, a video of a suspect or something to that effect. So I'm a big believer in, in working with the media to get things out. Uh, rewards, that's always a good thing to bring information, like you said, to shake the tree, hoping for something to fall out. But then again, a lot of times, uh, like you said earlier in the NYPD, they'll release a little bit too much. And that always uh, seems to be like a stumbling block that pops up in, in an investigation. Someone asked in the chat, is the local police handling the, in this investigation? And I know the local police is a very, very small department. Uh, may Probably not used to an uh, investigation of this scope and this large. So they also have brought in the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation as well as the FBI. So whether they're running it or not, I can't uh, say for sure. But we have those other two law enforcement bodies that are assisting I'm sure they have a lot more experience in these big cases. And look, missing person cases are some of the toughest cases that an investigator will ever work. And, you know, the longer it goes on, the, the more difficult it gets. Bill, you want to touch upon that? Yeah. I, I mean, listen, uh, I talked about the uh, the time frame uh, when it's a search and, and uh, rescue mission as opposed to a recovery mission. I mean, that uh, just is, uh, it's common sense, so to speak, you know, but uh, to touch a little bit about what you just said about the, the manpower, you know, us being part of the NYPD, a big city, uh, a lot of these cases, you know, they would happen on a frequent basis, whether it be a missing person, uh, a kidnapping, uh, a straight up murder, uh, all the different things that we were experienced with. And a lot of times when these cases would happen, all the necessary uh, units that they have within the police department would respond and jump right into action. Like when I worked in Coney Island, anytime there was a, a shooting or a murder or something that was, you know, very, very, uh, you know, we had to immediately jump on it. Everybody knew their place and we would, we would follow all the steps. They almost became routine. Who would be notifying, uh, you know, um, uh, what you said earlier, like uh, um, uh, probation or, or parole to try and find out parolees, sex offender registry, all the different things. And these are the things that happen in these type of cases. Missing person cases are very, um, very difficult to investigate when they're straight up. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about a runaway or something like that. But a, a case like this is obviously very frustrating and, and difficult to work on. But uh, based on what you just said, that it sounds like the state police and the FBI are involved. Um, I think that their expertise and their manpower would greatly help. And, um, you know, not trying to take away anything from these local investigators, but, you know, uh, sometimes having it happen and being, uh, you know, uh, exposed to it numerous times, uh, you get a lot better at it as opposed to having only uh, one or two major investigations a year, let's say. So, uh, 
you know, I think that that's a, a big factor in this case. You know, Phil, having said that, I, I know that, uh, you know, at the beginning of this case, there was like 1,200 people searching and they've since uh, scaled that back. And I would imagine they also, I don't know the number of investigators, but they, uh, that would always be a lot bigger in the beginning and the, they usually scale that back too. But one of the things is sometimes more isn't always better, especially in an investigation. Sometimes you need to fine tune it and have, you know, a circle of investigators reporting to each other, uh, discussing the case. And I jokingly said the other day, um, you know, I used to say to my detectives, you know, hypothesizing and theorizing. I said, it's good to hypothesize and theorize because that's how you, you run the case against each other. And I would say, stop hypothesizing. I can't even say it. Stop hypothesizing and theorizing and start typerizing your reports, you know. Right, they right, like, right. They, they didn't like when I said that, but it is important to hypothesize and theorize because you throw stuff at each other and whether it's uh, it could be true or not. Marlena Cantu, thank you for the $5 super chat. She asked, could TBI be calling guy with a red truck a possible witness when he be a possible suspect? Maybe so. They don't scare him away. Marlena, you hit it right on the head. Of course, they could be doing that. Um, law enforcement doesn't always have to let you know their intentions. And... Um, yeah, they want to speak to someone as a witness who's driving that red Toyota truck, no doubt. And, uh, you know, as I said, that information could be um, it could be very pertinent to the investigation or they could be trying to eliminate it as a potential suspect or as a potential witness. But it's always very important. You know, Phil, we've already been uh, speaking for uh, an hour and five minutes, and uh, I promised you we'd only do like a half hour, but... That never happens. You see, I lied to you, Phil. <laughs> I'm sorry. Quite okay. I'm sorry. It's quite okay. I'm sorry I lied to you, but when you, when you and I get to talking, uh, it, it's tough just to, uh, you know, limit it to 45 minutes. I, I think we hit a lot of good points today, too. And I'm sure that there's going to be developments in this case going forward. Um, with the help of God, she's found alive. Uh, but if she's found in another form and i'm sure there's going to be developments as we go along and i'm sure we'll be talking about this case again um you know uh, it would be fantastic to have intimate knowledge of the case but uh we have to go on what we have you know yeah no no doubt and folks in the chat i want to thank you for staying with us in the chat and uh if you're not subscribed to police off the cuff please go to the youtube channel and hit the subscribe button give us a thumbs up uh you can comment on facebook and uh, we're going to stay with this case. We're going to come back as long as this case uh, stays active. We're going to come back. In, fa in fact, I think this Sunday night, Duty Ron and I are going to uh, go live at 9 o'clock and uh, talk about this specific case. So if you could join us uh, Sunday night at 9 o'clock, we'd um, really like to have you there. And uh, Phil, you're always the best, man. Right out of we Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. Uh, people appreciate your uh, your calm demeanor and the your knowledge on this case and we really appreciate having you on the show folks i'm i'm bill cannon uh from police off the cuff and with phil grimaldi we'd like to say thank you so much for listening and have a great afternoon stay safe everybody <laughs>